I want to pray for you. Great. God, thank you for John and his ministry and his life and his mind and his heart as a pastor. I pray tonight you would anoint him, anoint him tonight for this space specifically. And uh, may we tonight uh, get caught up um, in what you're doing, Jesus, in the world. And we get caught up in your heart. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's always a joy to be in America's other great city. And uh, so I'm a, I'm a huge, huge fan of uh, San Francisco, and it really is a joy to be here. And uh, it's, it's kind of amazing that uh, this many people would be interested in this topic, particularly talking about sexual formation and the way of Jesus. So the title of this lecture should give a little bit of a clue about my come from. This talk here is not a talk of morality for society as a whole. So if you're here tonight, you're not a follower of Jesus, you're here tonight and you have uh, tensions with the church, oppressing the world with sort of a, a rigid theocracy, I'm not here to do any of that tonight. I'm trying to answer the question, what do people who claim to follow Jesus do with their sexuality? So, I want, so if you're not a Christian here tonight, consider this like a free chance to eavesdrop on a Christian conversation about how Christians are trying to deal with their sexuality. But this is who it's designed for. It's designed for followers of Jesus. And I'd like to start with a reading from the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' clearest teachings that we have. This is his kingdom manifesto. So I want to start with reading uh, from Matthew's gospel. This should be on the screen so you can follow along by the way. This is what it says. Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is God's Word. Now, what a, what a fascinating verse. I mean, I don't even know if we're going to get back to it, but it did feel right that you should start <laughs> with like reading Jesus on sexuality a little bit. Sex in society today seems, it's, it's such a confusing message. On one hand, we're told sex is nothing, it's normal, it's just stopping so uptight about it. And on the other hand, we're told this is the most important, fundamental human right that exists. And often in the same conversation, these messages come across, it can be very confusing. We live at a time in history today when sexuality is just presented so much differently. When I grew up, the first time I saw pornography, I was eight years old. I went to the local swimming center, the Armadale Aquatic Center in Western Australia, and as I walked into the public toilets, somebody had left pornography, laid it out and left it in the, uh, in the bathroom. And uh, so I was eight, and I, I remember very, very clearly that feeling of seeing a naked woman for the first time and something physically happening. And I remember just thinking to myself, I know what women look like with clothes on, but I've never encountered this. And I remember sort of the awakening or the understanding. It was a loss of innocence. And uh, so I did what all eight-year-old boys would do. I took that, I stole it. I took it <laughs> and I took it home. And my parents had like a, a kid's Bible dictionary or something. And I thought to myself, no one's ever going <laughs> to look in there. And so when I was eight years old, I put this, this picture of this naked woman, I still remember her name, it's just seared in my mind, inside this Bible dictionary. I have no idea where that Bible dictionary is on, <laughs> on planet Earth. 
The second time I saw pornography, I was in high school, and uh, I went over to a friend's house, and he said, hey, come into my dad's room, I want to show you something. So we're coming to his room, and he says, have you ever seen magazines like this? And so he lays out, basically, Playboy and Penthouse. And, uh, and again, I just remember that feeling of like, whoa, this is, you know, I, I haven't quite seen that. And I remember looking, not even all the way through these magazines, and again, that feeling of sexual awakening, like, there is a power here. What is that? There is something to this. Third time I saw pornography, it was Pamela Anderson in Playboy. And somebody again said to me, hey, did you see Pamela Anderson in Playboy? And I said, no. And they said, do you want to? And I was like, I don't know. And they're like, here she is. And uh, I remember this, actually, this was a very disorienting, a very disorienting moment because I had an awareness of who Pamela Anderson was culturally. But to see that same person naked produce this kind of false intimacy, it was almost confusing. It was attraction and confusion at the same time. There's a celebrity, and now she has no clothes on, and I feel like I know her in a way that if I saw her in real life, I'd be in trouble. And it was a very disorienting experience. So, that is the conclusion of all the pornography I saw growing up. You just, you just couldn't get pornography. You just couldn't find pornography. It just wasn't as accessible as it is today. Now, I want you to contrast that with how pornography is treated and sexuality in society today. There was an article in the New York Times that just was, was tearing through New York City. I mean, everybody was talking about it. People were having conversations about it on the subway. And this is what it says, New York Times, what teenagers are learning from online porn. Porn literacy is a course that is offered to high school students, and it says this, Porn Literacy, the course with the official title, The Truth About Pornography, a pornography literacy curriculum for high school students designed to reduce sexual and dating violence. It says this, for around two hours each week, for five weeks, the students, sophomores, juniors, and seniors, take part in porn literacy, which aims to make them savvier, more critical consumers of porn by examining how gender, sexuality, aggression, consent, race, queer sex, relationships, and body images are portrayed, or in the case of consent, not portrayed in pornography. And so they're literally hosting a class for high school kids that assumes they're going to be watching pornography, and they respond by saying, we're at least going to give you sort of some... Lit- it's, not, it's not like you study English literature to appreciate literature. It's pornography pornography literacy so you can understand the dynamics of porn. So here you have kids in high school being given a porn curriculum to understand what is happening within it. It is safe to say that what happened in this city 50 years ago was a complete and utter cultural success. The sexual revolution transformed American society. Now, if you use the term revolution, it basically means the overthrow of some established norm or government or understanding. And that is absolutely what happened with the sexual revolution. Mary Eberstolt says this, the sexual revolution was the destigmatization and demystification of non-marital sex and the reduction of sexual relations in general to a kind of hygienic recreation in which anything goes as long as those involved are consenting adults. So at the same time the sexual revolution was happening, the Jesus revolution sort of launched in response to it. And if you were to wait, if you were to take a 50-year framework and ask the question, who won that revolution? The answer is clear. The sexual revolution beat the, the Jesus revolution in America. 
So we live at a time when Christians, for the most part, have premarital sex, get divorced, look at pornography in almost the exact statistical amounts as people who don't claim that they follow Jesus. Now, I'm not saying this to produce any sort of shame tonight or to produce any sort of guilt tonight. I'm saying this because we're now getting a sense and an awareness of the power of sexuality in our world today. Sex is not just a physical act. It does something to us. It impacts us and shapes us. And the reason that the Bible has so much to say about sex and sexuality, not because it's bad and it's trying to warn us, but because it's so good and it's trying to form us properly. So sexual sin then is seen as something that harms not just what we do, but who we are. So sexual sin and spiritual deformation then says that when we engage in sexuality outside of the way that God's designed it, it shapes our being. Look at, look at what Paul says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says this. Now, th- this verse here, it just seems like the most implausible verse in a city like this. He says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. And then listen to this verse. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality people are just like, stop right there. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but it's meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead and He will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it says the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with Him in spirit. Flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, who you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, I had a professor in seminary, a brilliant man, who said the best translation of this word to sin against ourselves means to transform or to distort our personality, our sense of being. And if you were to ask the question, how does somebody become addicted to something, or or how does somebody become what we would describe as deviant or perverted? People don't come out of the womb like that. What happens here is that somebody gives themselves over to something repeatedly in a posture of surrender, and as a result, they're formed into the image of what it is that they consume. And so the Bible says that this, this power that has been unleashed in our society through the sexual revolution is an incredibly formative power. Sex has enough combustive force to incinerate a conscience, marital vows, family, commitments, religious devotion, and almost anything else laid out in its path. So Mary Eberstold, again, in her book, Adam and Eve After the Pill, says, First, and contrary to conventional depiction, the sexual revolution has proved a disaster for many men and women. And second, its weight has fallen heaviest on the smallest and weakest shoulders in society, even as it has given extra strength to those already strongest and most predatory. So, as followers of Jesus, I'm assuming tonight, I'm assuming tonight, that there's people in here, almost everybody, uh, who has some sort of sexual regret or baggage that they carry. We've just been in a culture with access to pornography, 
a, a total loosening of any sort of biblical standards. And so Christians are often walking around with tremendous game and sh- uh, shame and guilt. And so if we were to ask the question tonight, how comfortable would all of you be just sort of sharing your sexual history just with, with the group? Most people would say, there's things I've done that I just want to pretend never happened. I've woken up in beds and thought, dear God, if I could get that night back. It's people that you see that you're like, oh, I have to consciously try and shut down that that thing happened. Now, the good news as followers of Jesus is that Jesus welcomes, he was known as a friend of sinners. Jesus welcomes us to just bring whatever we've done, wherever we've come from, into his presence. It's actually extraordinary to realize that Jesus the holy and high God manifest in the flesh, was fond of sexual failures. He created space for them and he welcomed them in. So tonight, I'm not trying to hold up the Bible as a rule book to beat people down. I'm not trying to hold this up to produce shame in our hearts. I'm trying to ask the question, who do we become by what we're doing and is it bringing us more into life and fullness in the person of Jesus? So, when we talk about the sexual revolution then that's happened, there's been traditionally two responses, both of these in some sense, overreactions to the sexuality in our culture. The first response to the sexual revolution, and maybe you're aware of this dynamic, is a fear of desire, a fear of sexuality. Like, I mean, this thing's going to burn the whole house down, put the fire out, a total fear of eros. And the church, for the most part, has fallen into this category. A lot of this was framed by someone who tonight, well, unfortunately, is not here to be able to defend himself, but Jerome. Jerome was probably one of the greatest Christian scholars in the world by his mid-30s, perhaps the greatest figure in the history of Bible translation. He spent three decades creating a Latin version of the Bible that would be the standard Christian text for more than a millennium. But he was plagued by sexual fantasies. He said this, I often found myself surrounded by bands of dancing girls. So he's trying to translate the Bible and he finds in his mind dancing girls surrounding them. So his response was to fast and try and starve himself to control the temptations. He said, my face was pale with fasting, but though my limbs were as cold as ice, my mind was burning with desire and the fires of lust kept bubbling up before me when my flesh was as good as dead. So part of his way of trying to repress these fearful sexual desires he had was to study Hebrew to try and repress his sexual desires. And if you've ever had to study a language, that's like not an awful strategy. His scholarship resulted in the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible, but it did almost nothing to transform his attitude towards sex. So he came up with assigned values for women based on their sexuality. He gave 100 points for virgins, 60 for widows, 30 for married women, and he ranked marriage just above fornication. He said to husbands who make love with too much passion, they are, danger, they are falling close to the danger of being called adulterers. This sort of fear of power and sexuality crept into the church. Boswell says this, who was a gay theologian, he says this, in the succeeding centuries, church authorities issued edicts forbidding sex on Thursdays, the day of Christ's arrest, on Fridays, the day of his death, on Saturdays in honor of the Blessed Virgin, Virgin, on Sundays in honor of the departed saints, Wednesdays sometimes made the list too, as did the 40-day fast period before Easter, Christmas, and Pentecost, and also feast days 
as well as the days of the apostles, as well as the days of female impurity. One pope assigned a painter called Daniel the Trouserer to clothe the nudes in the Sistine Chapel. Another ruled that all priests must be celibate, and the list escalated until, it, Boswell estimates, there were only 44 days a year that remained available for God-blessed sex within marriage. And here's the basic framework here, responding to the sexual revolution where there's a fear of desire. This is the framework. Moral standards plus willpower equal holiness. So this is the vision. You've got to hold the standard up, you've got to try really hard, and that's the pathway to holiness. And in some sense, perhaps, this is the critique of the formula of the purity culture in this moment. So Yancey says this, I know of no greater failure among Christians than in presenting a persuasive point of view on sexuality. Outside the church, people think of God as the great spoil sport of human sexuality, not its inventor. In a sex-saturated society, even true believers find it hard to accept that traditional Christian morality offers the fullest, most satisfying life. The Pope utters pronouncements, denominations issue position papers, many Christians ignore them and follow the lead of the rest of society. Surveys reveal little difference between church attenders and non-attenders in the rates of premarital intercourse and cohabitation. Surveys also show that millions of people have left the church in disgust over its hypocrisy about sex, especially when priests and ministers fail in the practices that they preach. So how is this fear of desire fed? Well, I think it's safe to say that moral standards plus willpower has been a total failure. Moral standards plus willpower has produced guilt, shame, addiction. It's just been a disaster for the Christian tradition. Now, in reaction to this fear of desire, the response of others has been just follow your desires. Don't fear your desires, follow your desires. The term sex positivity was coined by Wilhelm Reich the sex positive, positive movement does not in general make moral or ethical distinctions between heterosexual or homosexual sex or masturbation regarding these choices as just matters of personal preference. Sexologist Carol Queen says this, it's a simple yet radical affirmation that we each grow our own passions on a different medium, that instead of having two or three or even half a dozen sexual orientations, we should be thinking in terms of millions. Sex positive respects each of our unique sexual profiles, even as we acknowledge that some of us have been damaged by a culture that tries to eradicate sexual difference and possibility. And in this framework, it's just like, calm down. Sex is just a bodily desire. You're thirsty, you drink water. You're hungry, you eat an organic kale salad with chickpeas. <laughs> You're aroused, you have sex with someone if they'll have sex with you. And if they don't, you masturbate. And if you're struggling with masturbation, look at porn. It's just a natural desire. Calm down. And this vision says desire plus consent equals freedom. Do whatever you want, and if someone will go along with it, you can enjoy total sex without any sort of consequence. Sexual freedom without any sort of consequence. And any sort of morality is just a hangover from a puritanical age. Now, we are 50 years deep into this experiment. And we can look back and say the church has failed in its vision of flourishing in sexuality. But how's our culture doing after 50 years of saying, do whatever you want, it's just a desire? Well, I would say that today, though, we're the most sex-crazed culture in history. Many people 
don't find freedom, they find bondage. Another New York Times article called What's the Lust Got to Do With It? The, uh, one of the editors, a former editor of Cosmopolitan and Marie Claire says this, getting naked and having sex with strangers is hard. We betray it as fun and we pretend it's fun, but people crave intimacy, which is not easy to create in a hookup. That's why Britain's just appointed a loneliness minister. I was like, hang on, Britain has a loneliness minister? Britain has a loneliness minister. The same bleak view of sexuality is inculcated in even our youngest children. A video put out by the Children's Television Workshop, which is Sesame Street, widely used in sex education classes, defines sexual relations as simply this, something done by two adults to give each other pleasure. So to children, what is sex? Something done by two adults to give each other pleasure. There's no mention of marriage, family, love, or commitment. No hint that sex has a richer purpose than sheer sensual gratification. And I, I pastor a church in New York City. It's, it's a city pretty similar in terms of the, the sexual and cultural dynamic of San Francisco. And I would say that desire plus consent, though at first appears to bring freedom, eventually what it results in is disillusionment. That people are using sex as a way to medicate so many other things that when they need to use sex for its purpose, it's like it doesn't seem to work the way I thought it would. There's so much disillusionment about this. I heard Bill Johnson say something which was fascinating. And by the way, this is the only talk you'll hear anytime soon that contains Bill Johnson, Tim Keller, and Boswell, a gay theologian. <laughs> but Bill Johnson said this, and it, I, I found this fascinating. He said, when you get rid of a creator, you get rid of design. When you get rid of design, you get rid of a specific purpose. When you get rid of a purpose, you get rid of accountability. When you get rid of the need to answer for your choices, then you get rid of the fear of God. You can do what you want without consequence. The Bible says when you get rid of the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom, all you are left with is total confusion. And that's what we're left with today. When it comes to the issue of sex, it's just so much confusion for those who claim to follow Jesus. So how do we respond to this? On one side, you have people saying, fear desire. On another side, you've got people saying, follow your desire. And I want to introduce tonight the main theme of this lecture, which is sexual formation. Jesus doesn't say fear desire. Jesus doesn't say follow desire. Jesus says, give me your desires and I will form your desires. This is about sexual formation. So what he wants us to do is not be controlled by lust or fear, but to literally make this a part of our discipleship. I'm going to say a statement that is going to seem so simple, but a sex therapist said it to me in the conversation, and, I, and it changed my whole paradigm. She said, Christians have to understand, Jesus wants to be Lord of your aroused state. So, hang on. Um, this was not in like a sex, this is over lunch with, uh, with just friends. <laughs> like, thank you. Jesus wants to be Lord of your aroused state because if, you, if you're honest with yourself, isn't it in your aroused state that traditional Christian ethics just seem crazy? This is like, whoa, I know one thing, but it just seems to go out the window. So Jesus wants to be Lord of our aroused states, the Lordship of Jesus in all of life. And this is an understanding of sexual formation. My desire is connected with God. 
So the way of Jesus then, I want to be clear, is not about purely our behavior. It's not moralism. And it's not even our motives. I want to do the right thing in my heart. And it's not even just my practices. Here's what I'm doing with my sexuality. Those things matter, but it's actually going underneath all of that. And it's asking this question, which is the key question of formation and the one we often miss. Who am I becoming by my sexual practice? Who am I becoming by what I'm doing with my sexuality? The goal for the follower of Jesus is to be conformed into his image. And so we have to align everything and evaluate it based on the question, who am I becoming by what I'm doing? And this is why the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul knew of every kind of um, sexual option that you can think of. In almost every epistle as he's planting churches, particularly as he gets further and further away from Jerusalem, he's got a little section and it says something like this. Hey, hey guys, I just taught through First Peter and he's got a section. Hey guys, you've spent enough time in the past in sexual debauchery and orgies. So that I know that's what you guys used to do. Like we're out of time for that now. Now it's time that you deny yourselves and follow Jesus. He just had an awareness of every kind of sexual behavior in Rome. And in every epistle, he's got this little section called you can't use sex like the world uses sex and become like Jesus. And one of his clearest teachings is found in 1 Thessalonians. Listen to what he says. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans, who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or a sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you about and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you the Holy Spirit. And so in every epistle, this has got people coming into the church from all of these you know, very, very different pagan backgrounds. He wants them to know when it comes to the teaching of sex, sex is a gift of God. It is powerful and surprising, and it makes people surprisingly fragile. So I'm not trying to repress your freedom. I'm trying to guard something formative, to guard something formative. And in his vision, he says, you have to learn to control yourself, to live different lives than the pagans, but this will happen by submitting to the Spirit. So, let's just pause for a sec. We live in a sex-crazed world, 50 years in, 1969, San Francisco, summer of love, 50 years later, here we are tonight in the fruit of that. There's been two responses. Response number one, total fear. Response number two, follow your desires. And I think tonight, followers of Jesus honestly ache for a better way. They ache for a better way. So how then do we take Jesus' vision of formation and begin to live it out? And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about. The first thing that has to happen is that Christians have to have a vision of what sexuality is in our tradition. 
What is actually happening in the act of sexuality? Now, I know that uh, Pastor Dave gave a talk last week on this, and so I encourage you to go back and to listen to that, and there'll be several more talks. But I want to cover four things that the Christian tradition has taught about what is happening in sex. Number one, sex is not purely a physical act. It's actually a signpost to the greatest story of intimacy and unity that we're in. In the Bible, they were naked and unashamed. In our culture, we are naked and ashamed. Even when we have our clothes off, we are still hiding and emotionally vulnerable. The very word sex comes from a Latin verb that means to cut off or to sever. And sexual impulses drive us to unite, to restore somehow the union that has been severed. Freud diagnosed the deep pain within us as longing for union with the parent, Jung diagnosed a longing for union with the opposite sex, and the Christian sees a deeper longing for union with the God who created us. So sexuality is a signpost of the ultimate intimacy that we have with God. And that's why Dostoevsky said every man who is knocking on the door of a brothel is actually looking for God. His ache is to be known and to be intimate. Yancey goes on and says this, sexual intimacy is a sacred pointer to something even greater, something truly out of this world. In one sense, we are never more godlike in the, than in the act of sex. We make ourselves vulnerable, we risk, we give and receive in a simultaneous act. We feel a primordial delight entering into the other in communion. Quite literally, we make one flesh out of two different persons, experiencing for a brief time a unity like no other. Two independent beings open their inmost selves and experience not a loss but a gain, in some way a profound mystery not even Paul dared explore. This most human act reveals something of the nature of reality, God's reality in his relations with creation and perhaps even within the Trinity itself. And this is the story of the gospel. It's a reminder of the true story. A God who loves us, has chosen us, rescued us, become naked and vulnerable on our behalf, and given himself to us unconditionally. And ultimately, what every human being aches for is to be fully vulnerable, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, in front of another person, and to be fully received without rejection. And that's what we have in the person of Jesus. Sees us at our absolute worst, sees all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame, does not condemn us, rises up, takes on those who condemn us and welcomes us in with grace. There, that's the relationship we ache for. And that's why sexuality, according to the world, can be so disheartening because when you give everything you have to someone and they reject you, it feels like your very being loses a sense of worth and weight. It's a reminder of the true story. Second thing, it's about a holistic integration. Sex is the bonding of two bodies and it's a picture that is supposed to be a bonding of two lives. When you remove a holistic vision of sexuality, you are left with what the French sociologist Jacques Allot calls an obsession with technique. So if the point of sex is to be a physical reminder of what's happening in the rest of your life, you're uniting your finances, you're uniting your future, you're uniting your dreams, you're uniting your emotions. When you get rid of all of that stuff and you say, it's just an act, it's just my body that I'm uniting, everything comes down to technique. And that's why porn is almost always explicit close-up. It's always technique. It's always genitals. It's rarely sh And even the stories are pathetic because there's no point to the story. It's just technique. In the movie A Beautiful Mind, it tells um, the story of a socially inept, brilliant man named John Nash. And he's in a bar. And he goes up into the woman in the bar. All of his friends have real game, and he doesn't. 
And he goes up to a woman and he says this, look, I don't have the words to say whatever it is that's necessary to get you in a bed, so can we just pretend I said those things and skip to the part where we exchange bodily fluids? Now, her response to this is to slap him in the face. And in many ways, that's the truth. If all it is is technique, skip all the drama and get to the technique. That's why so many kids, when they've watched porn and get involved in sexuality, are so disillusioned because the technique is different than their ability. And so, so much of that creates bodily issues with women. It challenges people's understanding. Sex is meant to be a picture of whole life union. It is a physical representation of everything else that's taking place. Third thing, sex is tied to our transformation in Christian spirituality. Uh, if you've ever read Rollheiser, and I'm assuming at some point, I know you've mentioned him before, and just basically read everything he's ever written. But Rollheiser talks about in his book, Holy Longing, the power of chaste tension as a gift of spiritual formation. I have older children. I have a son who I just dropped off at college this past weekend. I have a daughter who's 16. And, and I can tell you when, when I'm raising my children, bad parents, the parents that drive you crazy in this city, are the parents who give their kids everything they want and make two-year-old toddlers into mini-gods. Aren't they the most obnoxious, annoying parents? I know they're here. And you just want to say to him, do you not know the damage you're doing to your kid in a world like this by giving it to everyone? So a kid throws a tantrum and they're like, oh, all right. And they just give it. I'm like, you're literally deforming your kid. <laughs> no, it's, it's true. It, it, you're, you're laughing because you don't have kids. And every person who has kids is like, you are, yes, yes. <laughs> if it's true that a parent can see that giving a child whatever they want is not helpful for that child in real life. Why is it that we become adults and think about our sexuality, that we think that by doing whatever we want and giving into every desire that we have is going to be good for us? It's not. We are called to have self-control, self-respect, love for others, and we are called to reorient this crazy force of desire in our heart towards other-centered sacrificial care. It's what agape love is. And so our agape love is to manifest itself sexually as a agape sexuality. And that is completely different than an out-of-control, raging eros that seeks a person. Remember again C.S. Lewis, love wants a particular person. Lust will take anybody, anybody. And so for us, say using Christianity within the framework of marriage as taught in the Scriptures is a tool of spiritual formation to, to deal with these out-of-control forces and make us into the image of Jesus. And I need to move along. Number four, it's a witness to the world. It's a picture of Christ in the church. It's a place of respect and humanity, not commodification and abuse. It's a place of healing and restoration. It's a place of grace and transformation in the culture of lying and deceit and cheating. The early church conquered the Roman Empire without lifting a sword. It's, it's, it's actually the most extraordinary societal transformation in history. It took 300 years, which when you weren't living then, is like really quick. And if you were alive then and saw no transformation in your lifetime, felt like an eternity. But how did they conquer the world? Three things. They forgave their enemies when they were put to death. Number two, they were staggeringly generous with their resources. And number three, they kept their marital beds pure. The Romans just didn't have a category. Financial promiscuity, enemy love, and sexual conservative ethics. So one apologist says this, Christians marry as all others do. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. 
They have a common table but not a common bed. This is one of the rumors of Christians in the first century. So if we are going to take Jesus' vision of sexual formation seriously, we have to be aware of what that vision is. First of all, it is a reminder of this true story that we ache for. It's a holistic integration. It's a picture of whole life union. It's tied to our transformation. It's the redirection of our out-of-bounds desires. And fourthly, it's a witness to the world of the gospel story. Now, say that you agree with this so far. Does that make it any easier not to look at porn? We still, yes, yes, thank you, yes. We still feel these temptations. Even though you have the vision, you have to acknowledge the temptation and figure out how to redirect that towards Jesus. So what I want to do is I want to try and give sort of a a thoughtful, nuanced perspective on some of the issues that almost every Christian wrestles with. Okay, and I do want to talk about pornography. Almost 90% of men in, in modern society look at porn regularly. A huge percentage of women look at pornography. And it's almost just like, it's such an assumption, it's such a, a recognized part of our culture and our conversation, that if you really want to stand out, just say, I don't look at porn and watch people go, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? It's some an assumption. But pornography has remarkable formative power. Chris Hedges wrote a book called Empire of Illusion. This book will put you on your face in repentance. It basically talks about, and he is not a conservative Christian by any means, but the chapter on pornography, after every person who's read this chapter, the chapter on pornography and Empire of Illusion, has come away from some people manifesting feelings of physical illness by talking about what's actually behind the scenes. This is what he says. The largest users of internet porn are between the ages of 12 and 17, and porn producers increasingly target adolescents. Porn targets mid-teens to the mid-20s and up. So we now have a generation of boys, basically from middle school on, who have been dipping their brains in vats of violent, misogynistic pornography for about a decade. The more science loses, society loses touch with reality, especially in relationships, the more people do not know how it's supposed to be, how to react with other people. The more they turn to porn, people look at this fantasy and they believe it should be their reality. They retreat further and further into their illusion because porn can never be real. It does not work in real life. Porn is a sickness. The reason that porn is so important for Christians to resist is because of its formative power in every area of our life. Pornography rewires our brains. Now, you're all aware of neuroplasticity. One of the number one ways that is studied and manifested is in what pornography does to our brains. Comparing brain scans of porn users with scans of non-users, they found the more porn the person has used, the less reward center activation happens when porn images are flashed on a screen. This means that in order for someone regularly watching pornography to experience a burst of dopamine and arousal, they require increasingly hardcore pornography to produce the same result. People with internet addiction, pornography addiction are found to have less gray matter in several areas of the brain, including the frontal lobes, which oversees things such as planning, prioritizing, controlling impulses. The striatum, which is involved with the reward center and self-control, and the insula, an area involved with feeling empathy and compassion for others, are impacted by regular porn use. It affects our sexual tastes. When something sick or disturbing pops up, and somebody watches it in an aroused state, the brain stores the connection between arousal and violence. 
And the phrase that's used, neurons that fire together, wire together. So sexuality is then hardwired towards violence. As a porn user builds up tolerance, the pleasure of sexual discharge must be supplemented with the pleasure of aggressive release, and sexually aggressive images are increasingly mingled, hence the increase in sadomasochistic themes in hardcore pornography. Porn then, after it touches our brains, begins to impact our relationships. High-use users exposed to non-violent dehumanizing pornography, sorry, high-use high viewers who were exposed to dehumanizing pornography had higher scores and reported likelihood of committing rape, sexual callousness, sexually aggressive behaviors than high-end users who weren't shown, shown pornography as a part of the study. In a recent survey of 16 to 18-year-old Americans, nearly every participant learned to have sex by watching porn, and many young women said they were pressured to play out the scripts that male partners had learned from porn. They felt badgered into having uncomfortable sex, faking sexual responses, and consenting to unpleasant, painful acts. Now, this happens in society, but we have to ask ourselves as followers of Jesus, who am I becoming by what I'm doing? And when the research says it affects our neurology, it affects our sexual appetites, then there's no doubt that it will impact our culture. Among attorneys in a, in a, a meeting in November 2002, so you think about how long ago it was, of the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, 62% the internet had a significant factor in divorces. 56% explicitly state that internet pornography played a role in that. Not to mention intersectionality of, of trafficking, misogynistic behavior in society, the rise of rape culture on college campuses. Psychologists describe as addicted those who spend at least 11 or 12 hours a week researching or looking at pornography as a part of a diagnostic. So if you spend 11 or 12 hours a week looking at porn, you are categorized by a psychologist as having a pornography addiction. So you think about the amount of time that is how much sexual technique and imagery, the words that are spoken during pornography scenes, all going into the mind of a follower of Jesus Christ who is then to turn around and give himself in other-centered sacrificial love. This makes Christian sexuality very challenging when it's infused by violent pornography from the world. It deforms us and shapes us away from Christ. Pope John Paul says this, there's no dignity when the human dimension is eliminated from the person. In short, the problem with pornography is not that it shows us too much of the person, but it shows us too little of the person. Again, it's all technique. Now, whenever you talk about pornography, you normally talk about masturbation, and so I'd like to talk about masturbation now. Now, the challenge of masturbation is that the Bible doesn't, you're like, am I in a room right now where they're talking about, yeah, here we are. So... Um, <laughs> The Bible doesn't really talk about masturbation. There's like a couple of like shady scenes in the Old Testament that sort of have like a, a reference to it or whatever. But in general, it's just not issued. So I'm not going to stand up in front of you and say masturbation is sinful. This is the, again, I'm talking about sexual formation. Who are we becoming by what we're doing? So take it out of the categories like am I sinning or not? Put it in this question. Who am I becoming by what I'm doing? So even though the Bible doesn't address masturbation, your boy C.S. Lewis does, and so I want to talk about, about C.S. Lewis's take on masturbation, if I can. C.S. Lewis basically utilizes an, a concept taken from Augustine 
called incurvatus. This is a term that was used during the Reformation, and it means this, to collapse inward. It's self-love collapsed inward. So love that's supposed to be extended to others turns inward, and then we collapse into selfishness. Augustine's phrase was, sin is love turned in on itself. So, and again, you've got to think about this conversation actually happening. C.S. Lewis is writing a series of letters to a young American named Jack. And uh, so, it's, and it's obviously an American here. It's not a British guy. So he's got this young American who's like, I just want to take a moment here. Miracles, fantastic book. Thank you. Uh, also, Clive Staples, I wanted you to know, problem of pain, that really spoke to my inner man. Um, also, um, what, do you, what do you think about masturbation? He just sort of like slides it in there. And so this is his response. Listen, for me, the real evil of masturbation, so this is C.S. Lewis, for me, the real evil of masturbation would be that it takes an appetite which, in lawful use, leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct his own personality in that of another, and finally in children and even grandchildren, and turns it back, sending the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifice or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no real woman can rival. Among these shadowy brides, he is always adored, always the perfect lover. No demands made on his unselfishness. No mortification is ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. He continues... It is not only the faculty of love which is thus sterilized, forced back on itself, but also the faculty of imagination. The true exercise of imagination, in my view, is A, to help us to understand other people, B, to respond to, and some of us, to produce art. But it has also a bad use to provide for us in shadowy form a substitute for virtues, successes, distinctions, etc., which ought to be sought outside in the real world, e.g., picturing... All I'd do if I were rich instead of earning and saving. Masturbation involves this abuse of imagination in erotic matters, which I think is bad in itself, and thereby encourages a similar abuse in all spheres. After all, almost the main work of life is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prison we are all born in. Masturbation is to be avoided as all things are to be avoided, which retard this process. The danger of that, of coming to love the prison. Now, that was quite a little letter that he's just sort of penned off to the American right there. But three things I want to highlight. Number one, the harem within. He's obviously talking in a male context. He's writing to a young man. The harem within, abusing the imagination and loving the prison of self. The point of love is to be channeling what we have towards others. So in Ephesians 3, when it says, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper God's holy people. The question isn't, is it sinful or not? The question is, what's happening in my spiritual formation, my mind, my heart, my physicality, when I'm doing this? And thinking through that lens, it changes our understanding of the issue. 
If, and you know that this is a crisis in modern society where men say, women are just too hard to deal with now. I just look at porn and masturbate. In Japan, there's a diagnosed condition that the media call Sakusi Shinai Shokugan or celibacy syndrome, where young men literally say, it's too much work, I can't be bothered, I'm just going to watch porn and masturbate. They have no ability to come out of themselves into a relationship and to respond to this. Pornography changes us. Masturbation, particularly accompanied by pornography, shapes us. The harem within, abusing the imagination, loving the, pri- uh, the prison. Now, if you're like, okay, 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 I get it. What about dating, though? Like, now that, like, we've kissed dating goodbye, and, you know, like, that whole disaster, whatever, we've, ki- we've kissed everything goodbye, what do we say hello to? What do we say hello to? How does dating work in the midst of this? Well, again, I just want to put this forth. Dating is not in the Bible. It wasn't even a cultural concept at the time that it was written. So I want to give you what I perceive to be pastoral wisdom, not biblical law on this issue. In the 18th and 19th centuries, most marriages were arranged in society. Then they transitioned from arranged marriages to the concept of courtship, and then out of the concept of courtship into dating. The the term dating first appeared in print in 1914, so just over 100 years old. So before, during court, during an arranged marriage, there wasn't a lot of romance. During courtship, the worth of the man was basically considered in the context of the family. But dating changed the game because both man and woman removed themselves from the family construct, put themselves in fantasy environments, which no marriage is really like or can sustain over time. And then they put on their best foot, again, that which they cannot sustain and then they form lifetime commitments out of that framework. As dating spread throughout society, it individualized the process. It put the focus on romance, removed the emphasis on friendship, and character assessment gave way to spending money, being seen, and having fun. This ultimately led to hookup culture, which in many ways has given way to app culture. Now, look, I've got to tell you, I'm 42 years old. I've been married for 21 years. I've never installed a dating app on my phone. I've never swiped in any direction in my life, ever. I've never even opened Tinder on a phone. So I do pastor a church where 80% of people in the church are single and in their 20s. So I asked one of my friends, hey, I'm giving this talk on sexual formation what, what are dating apps like? And her response was this, dating apps are like Amazon Prime to deliver you hot people. That's her statement. So after having a conversation with my wife that I was doing research for a talk I'm giving on pastoring, I dove into the world of online dating and dating apps. And I came across this article in Vanity Fair called Tinder and Hookup Culture Promotion. And it basically talked about the way that Tinder has changed relationships. So I'm going to give you some extracts from this. There have been two major transitions in heterosexual mating in the last four million years, he says. The first was around 10,000 to 15 
thousand years ago, in the agricultural revolution, where we became less migratory and more settled, leading to the establishment of marriage as a cultural contract. And the second major transition is with the rise of the internet. So if it's confusing, it's because you're in a shift that hasn't happened in 10 to 15,000 years and has only happened once in the last 4 million years or so. So now some extracts. Guys view everything as a competition, he elaborates with his deep, reassuring voice. Who slept with the best, hottest girls? With these dating apps, he says, you're always sort of prowling. You could talk to two or three girls at a bar and pick the best one, or you can swipe a couple hundred uh, people a day. The sample size is so much larger. It's setting up two or three Tinder dates a week, and chances are sleeping with all of them. So you could rack up a hundred girls you've slept with in a year. There's the term Tinderella, a girl you were asleep with before midnight, but not after midnight. There's a Tinder king, a guy who can get some to sleep with them based on their text game, sometimes getting women to have sex with them by using emojis only. One guy says, I sort of play that I could be a boyfriend kind of guy in order to win them over, but then they start wanting me to care and I just don't. It's like ordering seamless, but you're ordering a person. It's rare for a woman of our generation to meet a man who treats her like a priority instead of an option. They start out with, send me nudes, says Reese, or they say something like, I'm looking for something quick within the next 10 or 20 minutes. Are you available? Okay, you're a mile away. Tell me your location. It's straight efficiency. Now, that one was from Manhattan. If he texts you before midnight, he actually likes you as a person. If it's after midnight, it's just for your body. I hooked up with three girls, thanks to the internet, off of Tinder in the course of four nights, and I spent a total of $80 on all three girls. Nick, and this is a critique of one guy, Nick, with his lumbosexual beard and hipster clothes, as if plucked from the wardrobe closet of girls, is physically speaking a modern male ideal. That he fulfills none of the requirements identified by evolutionary psychologists as what women supposedly look for in mates. He's neither rich or tall. He also lives with his mum. Doesn't have any effect on his ability to get rampantly laid. In his iPhone is a list of more than 40 girls he has had relations with, rated by one to five stars. It empowers them, he jokes. It's a mix of how good they are in bed and how attractive they are. Almost done. I had sex with a guy and he ignored me as I got dressed and I saw he was back on Tinder. A few young women admitted to me they use dating apps as a way to get free meals. I call it Tinder food stamps. <laughs> now, some of you right now are deleting Tinder as I speak. <laughs> if I just have your attention uh, back up here. The question we have to ask ourselves again is not, is this sinful or not? The question we have to ask ourselves is, who am I becoming and whose image am I formed into by using apps like this? Are they drawing me deeper into satisfaction and the love of God? Are they making more holy and able to resist the ways of the world? Are they making me more sacrificial and other-centered? It is a very, very rare Merton-like person who can enter this realm where algorithms are designed to addict, you, addict your brain like this and you be able to respond to it in a godly way. Most people, if they're honest, aren't dating because they're trying to find a person who will help them become more like Jesus through sacrificial covenant love. They're bored, they're aroused, they're lonely, their self-esteem is down, they just want some flesh. So, the big thing that this does 
is it creates a dysfunctional culture inside the church when Christians actually do try and date. C.S. Lewis again says the challenge with these loves, and he talks about the four loves, another one of his book, and he basically says there's four kinds of loves. There's, there's eros, erotic love. There's storge, which is sort of like a nostalgic, exciting love. It's that sense of sentiment and wonder. There's philia, which is friendship, brotherly love. And then there's agape, which is other-centered sacrificial care. Now, the challenge, I think, my pastoral observations of dating apps in the way that they are designed is they basically put love in this order. Number one, eros, are they sexually attractive? Number two, can I have an Instagram-worthy fun weekend with them? Number three, if they're good in bed and they're pretty fun to hang around, maybe I'll let them hang around for a while and we'll build a friendship. And then lastly, if I can bother with it or they give me enough, then I will offer them sacrificial care. This is the opposite way that Christians should be framing their understanding of dating. The Bible reverses those order. The first thing we should be looking for in a relationship with someone that is going somewhere is to ask the question, am I willing to offer this person unconditional, other-centered, sacrificial care? Then number two, can I build a compatible friendship over the course of time? Think Jonathan hates companionate love versus erotic, passionate love that will go the distance over the course of love, life. Number three, then... Can we sort of like add some sizzle and spice this thing up and work towards a lifetime of wonder? And then lastly, let's consummate this thing and wrap this up. It's the opposite direction. And so you are literally being trained by apps in the opposite order of Christian love. So am I, so, are you, so John, are you saying it's wrong to use apps? Wrong question. The question is, who are you becoming and what is happening to your loves, and what culture are you creating in the church by doing this? Now, we're moving along nicely here. Thank you. You've been wonderful. Um, just a couple more things to touch on. What about living together? What about living together? I mean, come on, man. Maybe you grew up and your parents, like a disaster of a marriage. Maybe you can't afford San Francisco. Can, can anybody afford San Francisco? You've got tech billionaires rooming together in this city. <laughs> One author describes premarital sex and living together, the try-before-you-buy mentality, and he categorizes these as subprime relationships, very similar to the subprime mortgage crisis. <laughs> this is what he says, if intimate relationships were mortgages, we might call these subprime commitments. They are high-risk projects with little or no collateral security. Unfortunately, just like the subprime mortgages, these relationships are actually designed to fail. Only one in five, and this research for the most part is not Christian research, one in five cohabiting relationships end in marriage. Cohabiting significantly increases the likelihood of divorce. Women who cohabit multiple times before marrying divorce more than twice as frequently as those who only live with their future husband. Serial monogamy, that is a string of consecutive sexual relationships, actually hinders eventual marital satisfaction, while sexual experience before marriage is a good indicator of an increased likelihood of infidelity within marriage. Now, I don't know why the world doesn't understand this. If you spend most of your 20s or 30s having sex with anybody who will have sex with you, 
like the small child saying yes to desire, and you never say no. There's no chase tension. There's no restraint. Why do you think that standing in front of a person and say, I'll try not, no, uh, no, I promise I won't, why do you think that you can shut off years of physical and mental and emotional giving in to sexual temptation? So the whole thing is designed to fail in the structure in which you go into it. So Keller says this, what the Bible, when the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by how much you want to receive, but by how much you are willing to give of yourselves to someone. How much you're willing to lose for the sake of this person? How much of your freedom are you willing to forsake? How much of your precious time, emotion, and resources are you willing to invest in this person? And for that, the marriage vow is not just helpful, but it's even a test. In so many cases, when one person says to another, I love you, but let's not ruin it by getting married, the person really means, I don't love you enough to close off all of my options. I don't love you enough to give myself to you that thoroughly. To say, I don't need a piece of piece of paper to love you is basically to say my love for you has not reached the marriage level so pornography dating apps living together masturbation all of these pressures in our society everywhere just the constant drip the constant media influx of this messaging means we have to ask the question if it's willpower and morality that's a failure if it's freedom and consent that's a failure, how do we move forward with sexual formation? So I want to give you my take tonight. It's this. Vision plus power plus practices equals restoration. A vision of what sex is actually designed to do, the power of the Holy Spirit, serving in the power of the Spirit, not the law, practices that regird what we think it's supposed to be and who we're becoming by doing it, and then delighting and celebrating being restored in the image of Jesus and living in grace and freedom. We need to reorder our desires so they reflect the reality of godly relationships. And this is what it's about. You can't rely on external motivation. We need new hearts and then habits that back those up with a vision of who God has called us to be. Now, this happens on two levels. If the church is going to have a counterculture sexually, individuals have to make this commitment. You've got to have personal integrity on this issue. It can't be them. It can't be their fault. It can't be women. It can't be men. It's got to be you. You as a follower of Jesus have to say, Jesus, you are Lord of everything, including my sexuality. I submit it to you. I come in a posture of surrender. And I'm doing that because, Jesus, you love me unconditionally. And so I just want my passion to match your passion for me. I want to be equally yoked. I want to be rightly oriented to your staggering, sacrificial, self-emptying love that you have for me. Every choice, though, in a culture like ours to withdraw from sexual participation in our world won't make you feel weird or left out. It will be experienced, and you have to know this, as a form of suffering. You will feel like you're suffering to not go along with the flow of the culture. Jean Vinay says a commitment to purity is a sign of hope, but it will cost you dearly in a disordered world. And so you can just feel like, you can feel like the Amish. You can just feel like, what, what, who? People will be suspicious of you. People won't have a grid for this. But if you do it with integrity, in a non judgmental way, people will respect you. 
And you can just say to people, look, man, I come from a background of so much brokenness. There's so much craziness. I'm just trying to do my thing, man. Will you just honor my desire to live with integrity myself? People respect people who don't drink alcohol because they know it can, it can cause them problems in their life. We have a lot of respect for those who are in recovery. And if we live with a simple attitude, I don't do that because I've got a conviction about how this is. You may not be liked, you may be seen as weird, but I believe people will respect your integrity. We have to have an individual formation. But secondly, we have to have a communal formation. Listen again to Paul's verse, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we've told and warned you about before. So to take advantage is this idea of committing sexual fraud in the church. And what is sexual fraud? It is to promise with your body what you will not deliver with your life. To promise with your body what you will not follow through on with your life. And he says that God cares about his church so much and he doesn't want to see brothers and sisters take advantage or defraud each other of their sexual integrity before God. That he says that if you go around and you do this, God will punish you for this. There will be judgment from God if you take advantage of others in the church sexually. And if that sounds harsh, Paul is like, you're not listening to a human being here. You are rejecting God himself. You're not going to stand before Paul and give an account of your life. You're certainly not going to stand before me. You're going to do a little one-on-one time with Jesus, and he's going to say, how did you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ? And so we have to have a vision of integrity in the Christian community. People should find an absolute sense of ease and rest coming into the culture of the church from the predatory society around us. They should come in and they should feel safe and they can breathe and experience a different culture. So we need to have communities that discipline our sexuality out of love for one another. But that's not enough. We have to have communities that are putting the joy of Jesus on display as an alternative to the dysfunction of the world. I came across this. This blew my mind. Listen to this. Neurobiologists have shown that while most brain development stops somewhere in childhood, the brain's joy center, you've got a joy center in your head, right? Located and observable in the right orbitable prefrontal cortex is the only part of the brain that never loses its capacity to grow. As Dr. James Friesen and his colleagues explained, when the joy center has been sufficiently developed, it regulates emotions, pain control, and immunity centers. It guides us to act like ourselves. It releases neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin, and it is the only part of the brain that overrides the main drive centers, food and sexual impulses, terror and rage. Without sufficient joy strength, we spend the rest of our lives trying to fill the deficit. And so we have an obligation to feast on the good news of the gospel, the freedom we have in Jesus, our bodies washed with water, our consciences washed with the blood of Jesus. Total freedom, total forgiveness, unconditional love, new family, new future, new holiness, new inheritance. Everything is yours in the new covenant of Jesus. And we should be feasting on that like crazy. And when we do that, it actually strengthens our brain. A brain marinating in porn versus a brain's joy center that never stops growing because the church is cultivating it. That's the only way we can fend off the insanity of the world. So communities of discipline and communities of delight that offer a different vision to the world.
Now, I want to say this. Some of you are here tonight, and after hearing all of this, you're just like, that sound, you know what? That was like, that's actually a bit better than I thought. Like, there was actually, it was actually okay. Like, there's a bit in there, right? Maybe. But you're like, I just actually don't know if it's true for me. Like, look, man, if you, if you'd, if you knew what I've done, like, if you just look, man, I mean, I've just done some stuff. And I'm actually, I'm actually afraid to date people in the church because when you have, like, sort of the roster and you have that conversation of, like, where have you been? Like, I'm just actually afraid that no one's going to want me. Like, and I've got deep regret and I can't go back and change the past. And Like, this, I just don't know if this is going to work for me. Like, you don't know what I've looked at, man. I've seen so much craziness. And, and this is why, to me, Jesus is the most compelling person who's ever lived. Because Jesus is the only person I know who holds a standard really high, like cut your hand off and don't look lustfully. And you think that what that would do is, is that he would minister like a Pharisee, then he'd walk around beating people up. But he holds up a standard, then he goes around, and you know what he does? He's like loves spending time with sinners and welcoming them in. Jesus finds a woman caught in adultery, and everyone's like, look what the law says. And he says, look, I, you know, I appreciate, uh, appreciate what that says. But then he actually gets down and he drives a wedge to create a space of freedom and restoration. And I want you to know this tonight. I want you to know this. If you hear a voice of condemnation from your past tonight, I want you to see Jesus, the Son of God, creating a wedge between your past and your future and saying to you, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. I've got life for you. I've got a future for you. The Bible is a book, not for perfect people. It's a book for broken people. It's a book for people. David was an adulterer. I mean, like, there's just a book of craziness. And yet these are the very people that God uses to build his kingdom. So I just want to, if you feel accused tonight, if you feel like God could never forgive me, no one's ever going to want me, I just cancel these lies out in Jesus' name. Jesus loves you. He sees you. He forgives you. He wants you. He wants you. I saw this beautiful Japanese art form, and it's an art form of restoration called kintsugi. And there should be some pictures of it up here, kintsugi. And if we can go to one of these slides, this, this is basically what it says. While the general Western consensus on broken objects is that they've lost their value, practitioners and admirers of kintsugi believe that never-ending consumerism is not a spiritually rewarding experience. The Kintsugi method conveys a philosophy not of replacement, but of awe, reverence, and restoration. The gold-filled cracks of a once-broken item are a testament to its history. One practitioner points out, the importance of Kintsugi is not the physical appearance, it is the beauty and the importance that stays with the person who observes the art. So this is, in many ways, what the Church of Jesus is. Jesus is kintsugi for people from San Francisco. Brokenness, dysfunction, abuse, pornography, promiscuity, same-sex relationship, whatever. Whatever you've done, wherever you're coming from. And Jesus just says, I will make your story beautiful. I'll, I'll put it back together in such a remarkable way that those places that you're actually ashamed of that you think disqualify you actually become the marks of grace that minister life to other people. And because it's not about shame or earning, we don't have to fear our past because of the blood of Jesus. It lets us talk about our past and bring hope to others in total sexual confusion. And I know tonight 
that many of you are kintsugi people. You're here tonight and you could stand up. I'm a kintsugi person. My wife comes from a crazy kintsugi background. And we're here to bear witness tonight that the way of Jesus is the most beautiful, compelling thing. There's nobody like Jesus Christ. Nobody will ever love you like Jesus Christ. And if you let him, he'll do this for you. He'll take all of your sexual brokenness, put it back together in such a way that you are, you are beautiful and whole and loved in his sight. So out there, the 50-year anniversary of the sexual revolution, total craziness. Tonight, the beginning of the Kintsugi revolution where Jesus brings together people in his kingdom. Amen. Amen. Let me just say a prayer before we, uh, before we do the funeral. And can I just say, that if you're here tonight and you have sensed the Holy Spirit speaking to you, he's only bringing this up because he wants to bring you freedom. He's only bringing this up because he wants to replace it with something better. So if you're t tonight you just felt the Holy Spirit prompting you, not these words or whatever, but God himself is just is doing something in your heart. Just, just respond to him. So I'm just going to pray. You don't have to do any physical response, but maybe just have a moment of silence to lift our hearts to God and just invite him in. Invite him into all of those places. Bring whatever it is into the light. He knows already. It's only the illusion of our experience that he's not aware of it. But there's an integration in acknowledging it. Let's just bring it into his presence and just enjoy his grace tonight. Jesus, you are the friend of sinners. You are a faithful high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. And we just say thank you tonight. Thank you for your unconditional love. Thank you for your steadfast mercy and grace that hunts us down all the days of our life, comes after us. And Lord, we just thank you tonight just to hear words of good news and just clarity in a culture that just in many ways is even hard to make sense of. And so I just pray, Lord Jesus, send your spirit into the hearts of my brothers and sisters here tonight. Bring comfort, bring hope, and bring joy. We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.